Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist practicing in the lovely state of Oregon, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea, because in nature, it's always herbal hour. We have back Dr. Alex Hine, and today we're going to talk about herbal medicine, uh, natural health philosophy, Chinese medicine, and naturopathy. Hello, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you for for coming on the show, and I hope we have a amazing conversation as always. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me, legendary Dr. Dan. Do you yes. like to go by Dr. Dan now or Dr. McCarchuk or Master of the Universe or what do you like to go by? Usually Dr. Master of the Universe, but no. I'm just kidding. That <laughs> uh, makes, that makes Dr. Sense. Dan or Dr. Bogdan. What are some of like the most common herbs that you find yourself using for your patients? Yeah, I would say, <clears throat> you know, I had someone ask me this question recently and I actually looked through my medicinary to see what herbs have been sold the most in the last year. And uh, no surprise, they were all digestive herbs, right? Mm -hmm. So there are herbs that primarily have an effect on digestion. And some of them, you know, it's a little bit different in Chinese medicine, because for example, we could treat headaches through digestion. And it wouldn't necessarily make sense from a biomedical point of view, although I'm sure you'd have to find some relationship. But from a Chinese medicine point of view, those problems are often originating in the gut. So the biggest category in class is for sure, at least in my practice, is herbs related to digestion. So herbs like uh, baiju, um, which I could have, let me see if I have a translator with me, fuling, which is poria, which is a kind of fungus that grows at the base of pine trees. And it, it comes up in this white ball. And what fuling is typically used for is basically, uh, it's, it's basically a mild diuretic. So it works a lot for um, people who are getting bloating, abdominal fullness, palpitations, anxiety, it's very effective for sleep. It's very effective for, uh, ginseng is a big one, uh, because ginseng is common in a couple different key formulas that regulate digestion. Um, ginger is a very common one. Honey fried licorice is a common one. And then other herbs that are not so well known in the West, Banxia, which is Penelia, uh, has a potent effect, not only on the GI, like acid reflux and indigestion, but also brain chemistry, very effective for depression or lymphatic issues. Um, and then I would say other herbs that are one of their primary categories is digestion, but they also work, for example, on the blood and the circulation, like Chen Pi, aged tangerine peel. So mm. all of these are really primarily digestive herbs, but uh, we use them for diverse uh, functions and uses. So mm -hmm. the biggest category in Guajir, cinnamon twig is a really, really big one, mm -hmm. very effective for circulation, but also um, very effective for the nervous system, calming the nervous system and sleep as well. So I would say that that's really the biggest category. If I had to break it down into one singular category. Do you think that's something that's kind of unique to the patients, uh, you're getting or, or the work you're doing specifically, or is that uh, Chinese medicine herbalism in general that it, it focuses in around, uh, treating the gut herbally? Yeah, I think it's really is classical Chinese medicine herbalism. You're always treating the earth organs, uh, you know, because the earth is in Chinese medicine, the digestive organs are the foundation of where you generate your, your reserves from. Basically, the main way you generate, quote, qi and blood in Chinese medicine, one of the main ways is through digestion. Healthy digestion is one of the main ways you generate 
longevity and vitality. Um, you know, and absorbing you the herbs too, right? If yeah. somebody's digestive yeah. tract is they have leaky gut or they don't digest well, it doesn't matter how many herbs they take in, it's not going into their body. That yeah, you throw you throw a hard to digest herb like ginseng into someone with leaky gut, that herb alone is a hard to digest herb. I mean, that that will create a lot of bloating and will worsen those problems. Mm. So I think, yeah, absolutely. A piece of it is they have to digest those from a, just a logical perspective. But on top of that, it is, it is really, um, it's an almost an archetypal principle of Chinese medicine. You're always protecting the, the quote, earth organs, the digestive organs. Mm. So it's very interesting that the bulk of these formulas often have the magic five, Shengjiang, which is ginger, uh, often Bai Shao, which is uh, peony, uh, Dazao, which is jujube, Jigansao, honey fried, honey fried licorice. Um, those that sounds are often, good, honey fried licorice. Oh yeah. So what is what is the? Uh, of course, licorice is used a lot in Western herbalism as well. What do you think the honey frying does for it? Do you think it changes its effects or makes it better absorbed? Yeah. So the honey frying is considered more tonifying. So basically in Chinese medicine, the flavor and the nature of the, the herb and the formula determine what it does functionally. So sweet herbs, sweet and spicy herbs primarily tonify what we consider yang. So are primarily building in nature and other herbs are more reducing or more moving. So you buy taking gansao, which is just regular licorice to jirgansao, honey fried, you strengthening the effect for someone who's more, uh, who's more rundown or needs more fluids generated. But primarily, it's considered more tonifying. So a person who's more deficient, more weak, will often use jirgatsao, honey fried licorice. As mm, a that sounds good. How do you uh, how do you honey fry it? Is it just in a pan? I'm kind of interested in trying that because I have quite a bit of licorice that I use, but I've never yeah. tried honey frying. I have done it just like that. Yeah, I have bought local honey. I just had gansao. I did. I just had plain licorice, not the honey fried one. And I threw. You know, can you just eat it? Like just chew it? Because you know you, how you can chew <laughs> on like uh, licorice twigs. It's like really, really sweet. Yeah, you could, but I mean, when you use the way it's cut for Chinese herbalism, it's just really thick. It's more wood. It's more wood yeah, than it is like true. a bark. So you just, it would probably not digest well, but <laughs> break your teeth. Yeah. Not you recommended. Could, you could honey fry it in the pan. I've done it. I don't know how they really properly do it in the, in the herbal factories, but definitely that's what it is. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, in general, uh, like especially earlier naturopathy, like traditional naturopathy, they always say, you know, first treat the gut. That's uh, something uh, found even as early as a uh, uh, text from uh, Hippocrates from like 300 BC. He says all disease begins in the gut and gives all these explanations wow. for that. Uh, it it makes sense. Uh, I was actually thinking about this. Uh our gut in some sense, and really just like our upper, uh, upper respiratory tract, whatever it's, it's our main interface with the external world. Right. Because right. everywhere else we're protected. Like we have a skin barrier. The external world is not really getting into your body, but through your gut, it's like literally, you know, food or whatever water is actually going into the inner parts of your body. And also like the gut is also like the outside, um, in, in some sense. And, uh, yeah, so there's something to be said about that. Another thing I wanted to add, reflecting on it uh, as compared to uh, Western herbalism, is that a lot of the digestive herbs uh, or ones that are considered digestive herbs within you know the traditional Western uh, tradition, they also have effects on the nervous system, right? Because right. any any herb that would have you know 
any kind of the parasympathetic effects. So stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system would in nature work directly on digestion. And I've actually noticed that for really strong uh, digestive bitter herbs. Uh, I don't, have you ever tried gentian? Uh, gentian? Yeah. Really, really bitter, right? Yeah. Uh, I've noticed just experimenting with it uh, for myself, although typically it's really used more as a, like I said, a digestive bitter for stimulant digestion, just the taste itself is, is strong. You can feel like salvation. You might start burping and things like that within 15 minutes. But I noticed it's actually taking gentian, like a tincture. It's actually really calming. I noticed it was like, it was almost like I felt like I took an herbal sedative, mm. which, uh, which had a, a strong effect, uh, more than even some of the other like classically considered to be sedative herbs like you know uh lemon balm or chamomile or lavender yeah exactly yeah Uh, and i noticed gentian was like really really strong and it was like a very centered it wasn't like a mind sedative it just felt like my whole body was was sedated it made me think uh that there, there is like this dual nature to it, right? If it's supporting yeah. one system, it's, it's doing something on another system. Nothing in the body seems to exist, you know, in isolation. So even if you use only gut herbs, like the gut interfaces with your brain, it interfaces with every organ in the body, right? So it will affect everything eventually, no matter yeah. where you treat. Right. And I think that's why, you know, even in ancient Chinese medicine, you know, a lot of these formulas were described in terms of formula patterns that could range from like a classic formula called Li Wan, regulate the middle pill. Uh, you look at it and it's really just all digestive herbs, but one of the other key indications is enuresis, frequent urination, frequent clear copious urination. Mm. It doesn't make any sense of how that would treat that, but from a Chinese I medicine- a, I have a theory, actually. I have a theory yeah, well, that I could put in. Yeah, I'm I mean, sorry, one of the herbs, Baiju, does regulate you know, urination. It does, it does affect urination and bowel movements. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an herb that grows in- uh, like a lot of the herbs, for example, some of them like grow like in marshes and swamps or in very wet environments. So I'm sure they're well evolved to deal with that. But, uh, you know, I, I do think it's some of them do overlap. Like I mentioned fooling, right? Poria, this fungus that grows at the base of pine trees, it is classically indicated more for like the anxiety angle and the urination and that aspect. Um, but it's very often in digestive formulas these days. So it probably works on both. And then there are other herbs, even ginseng is uh, well-studied. I mean, it regulates, has it a profound effect on the HPA access. And even on some of the studies, I was reading this research paper on commonly used formulas for insomnia, and they were studying ginseng's effect on insomnia alone was pretty, pretty profound. So again, you know, an herb that I don't know what the layperson thinks of ginseng as being used for, but very often we use ginseng in, in formulas for digestion, probably as one of the most common probably the most common formula pattern is in digestive formulas. So it's kind of interesting. That is interesting because in the traditional Western system, it's uh, like you said, reference the HP axis, it's considered adaptogenic. So it works more on like stress and cortisol, the adrenals. What I want to uh, add about that connection with like increased urination, that's a key part of the 
you know, long-term sympathetic stress response, the kidneys and the right. adrenals and things. Right. Yeah. Uh, a great example of that, that everyone has noticed is drink a, a ton of coffee or caffeine. You'll notice you're actually going to the bathroom much more frequently. And it's like lighter urine, even if you didn't drink like a lot of actual fluid. So anything that uh, stimulates uh, the stress response, like especially after the stressor is gone, because generally while the stressor is going on, your body doesn't make you pee, but afterwards, right. That like rebalancing, uh, that's a really common symptom of that kind of, uh, sympathetic nervous system, overactivation, chronic stress, et cetera, is that going to the bathroom tons and tons and very frequently. And it's light urine, even when you don't drink a lot. So there's a lot going on there. It's very complex, like biochemically what's happening, but that relation with like the kidneys, the adrenals uh, in Chinese medicine, kidney yang and, and urination is, is pretty big. So there's like another interface there with the, with the nervous system. Yeah, for sure. For sure. A lot of layers, no doubt about it. I think these ancient people all knew, all, all observe that, you know, mm-hmm. that sometimes an herb could help with one thing or multiple things. And uh, you know, uh, uh, the pattern is usually never one symptom by itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they're not isolated because the, the body never acts in an isolated way. Right. Right. There's like a general response to something, uh, not usually as specific. That makes me, uh, makes me wonder about this. Uh, what's the Chinese herb herbalism tradition. Does it have, you know, links far, far back? Cause I wonder you know, a lot of these herbal traditions, they're already like very well formulated. They're well understood. Do you think that there's like roots going back into prehistory perhaps? Prehistory meaning what? The BC era? Yeah. Like BC, far, far BC, right? When, when people maybe didn't write things down, but they just experimented, tried things, realized things. And then they, it was an oral tradition before think- anything was written down. I think it had to have been. I mean, one of our most uh, one of our most important to this day herbal texts, the Shang Han Lun, was written first couple hundred years of the AD era, right? A couple hundred years after Christ, and it was already showing extremely sophisticated herbalism formulas that range from two ingredients to over to 20, 15, 20 ingredients. Extremely sophisticated combinations of herbs and very clear differentiation clinically. Um, there's no way that in just 200 years that was put together. That's, that, yeah, that, that's, that's got to be thousands of years, thousands before then. It just it must have it must have been in prehistory. I mean, herbalism is is ancient, the most ancient form of medicine, I assume, along with shamanism and along with religious. As practices. far as we know, did you did you know there was an anthropological find uh, from I believe it was like ten thousand or even a couple of 10,000 years ago. I forget the exact number, but it was really far back, like way prehistory when there was only these like sparse shamanic traditions. There was no like organized medicine. Uh, they found in the, their grave sites like medicinal herbs and they had evidence that they were actually not just using them as food. They were using them specifically to treat illness, like going back tens of thousands of years. So I, I think that that's, that's a super old tradition. Super it makes old. sense because I mean, even anyone who lives on the land observes animals will eat plants when they get sick. Exactly. Right. If you have a dog, yeah. your dog goes out in the backyard and eats a bunch of, of grasses when their stomachs. There's an instinct and, for it. It's not even necessarily something right. that like animals have to learn. They more right. kind of have instincts and they uh, intuitions. And then I guess we are different in that 
we have those because obviously humans are animals as well. Uh, but we like organize those systems and now we're doing like research around it, trying to uh, compile and all those things. So it's the, it's the oldest medicine in the book, contrary yeah. to what, it, what everyone might say. For sure. For sure. What, uh, what are your uh, go-to books about herbalism from the Chinese perspective? Like if there was like a top three, everybody interested in Chinese herbalism should, should check these out. You know, I think, um, I mean, really the main one, primarily the only one I refer to on a daily basis is the Shang Han Lun, but it's really not a, it's really not a learning text. It really just basically, it's an, it's the most ancient systematized herbal textbook we have in Chinese medicine. And all those formulas are still just as efficacious today. Um, but I would say a good one in general is probably the, the Bensky book, herbal book that we use, you have to learn for school, because it's, it's very interesting having uh, hundreds of formulas from thousands of years, many different dynasties and many different eras all in one spot, because it shows the originator. So you can understand the context of the time that it comes from. And you can, you can also understand the differing changes in herbal theory and herbal practice. So, you know, recently, a lot of the practices have become almost biomedical in the way that people practice and prescribe, even mm -hmm. acupuncture, right? Acupuncture. TCM. Where, yeah. TCM is anything but traditional, right? It's just a modern invention. A lot of the mo most modern TCM practitioners, wherever there's the pain or the issue, you just put needles there. If it were that easy to fix problems, we would all have packed practices. Yeah. Right? And modern, modern medicine does a better job of using that kind of philosophy to treat, because if you're going to specifically focus in on like one target, then why wouldn't a pharmaceutical be better? I mean, it's more concentrated, it's more direct. You can study it more specifically, whereas herbs right. have a thousand compounds. So yeah. it makes sense to, to practice uh, herbalism or really any of the holistic, uh, you know, medicines, in their original context, using pattern-based diagnosis and things like that makes a lot of sense. And, and using research too, because I think what I found for myself is that I like looking through both lenses, kind of like Venn diagram. Like first I'll, you know, consult like an herbal book, which is more about like traditional uses and specifics, read about it, like what it's been used for and that kind of thing. And then with that knowledge, once I have a few ideas, I'll, I'll look, um, you know, through the research to see what kind of formulas have worked, what, what kind of ones show. And if I can get it to overlap, I think that's like a great sign that one, like for sure, this herb, the tradition of use is biochemically active, which I think is, is important to the, to the use of it. And then two, it has a really long tradition. If I, if I was to like only have one though, to choose, I would go based on the tradition because like, that's just empirical, you know, uh, if people for 10,000, 20,000 years have been just trying herbs, uh, planting, replanting herbs that they found were useful, even if it was by accident, things can work by accident, but eventually people will understand that and they'll systematize it. Right. There's, there's much to be said for that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What, what do you think is, this is something we've talked about before in terms of the like philosophy of Chinese medicine versus naturopathic and things like that. Do you think, where do you see, if anywhere, uh, Chinese medicine progressing? Do you think that like it will continue to get more refined in the original traditions? Is there like using that philosophy and applying it to different forms of medicine? What you see, or what do you think? Yeah, well, I posed that same question to one of my mentors, Heiner Fruhoff, and he said, 
he said, uh, it's not inherently in the formulas because all the formulas work exactly the way they said for thousands of years. It's really in the accurate diagnoses and uses of them, use of them, because some of these patterns, you know, especially when patients come in, they're on multiple medications. Now the pattern is a little bit more, it's obscured, right? The truth is now a little bit harder to tell because you There's don't know. There's different factors happening. acting that didn't exist in those times. Right. So there are these different factors and either way there, I mean, there are hundreds of studies showing that patients already on medications will just see an improved response from layering on Chinese herbs, even chemotherapy. So the synergistic effect is often a great, um, is, is really valuable. So I think one of the biggest ones is really diagnosing and treating, um, learning to, to really to diagnose, especially these new illnesses that we're seeing, you know, the many different kinds of cancers or, um, and we're always going to be, you know, coronavirus is another great one. I think a big part of it is increased diagnosis. And I think maybe because a lot of this has stood the test of time, maybe increased synthesis into the modern healthcare system. I mean, there are countries that do that. America is probably the least likely because it's so profit oriented and it actively takes steps to um, reduce its competition. You know, in Japan, I was reading this, this book and it was saying, at that time, about 90% of gynecologists used Chinese herbal formulas because they were so effective, so clinically effective. They were just used as a prescription. Mm -hmm. um, they were that predictable. Like that and, in a lot of places in Europe too, like uh, Germany, for example, they have, you know, form, you can go to, from what I understand, most pharmacies, you can go and get like St. John's wort at like the pharmacy as a prescription, like extract or something, which yeah. is really cool. They didn't like uproot that tradition because in America, like there is a really rich like herbal tradition here, like from, you know, uh, this area in, in the early 1900s. But like you said, there was a lot of like political and financial profit motives and things like that, that kind of uh, like cut off that part and said and just kind of like pushed it to this uh, to the side in a way that hasn't happened in other countries. But in the last like 20, 30 years, it looks like it's there's like a very, very strong rebound in the other direction where there's a, a lot of uh, people who, you know, were a hundred percent in on modern medicine being the only answer for uh, treating any kind of illness are like, you know, opening their, their mind to other possibilities. Some are outright, even just like rejecting it and being distrustful. That's like pretty common uh, because of a lot of the harms that come through medicine. I mean, if you're going to have a, you know, effect, you can also have a, a negative effect. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's to be expected. Um, but yeah, distrust in medicine is not, is not good for, it's not good for anybody. I don't think, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it's understandable. It's understandable. Right. Yeah. So what herbs are, are, are you using these days? If you don't mind uh, getting into that and maybe talking about like, maybe like a few of them that you like using, maybe some that you use more casually, maybe some more as like a medicinal formula or something like that. So I would say, let's, let's go back to digestion for a second. I would say, you know, when we talk about, we're talking about everything on a spectrum of binary, right. From black to white and then in the middle. And I think if we start with just digestion, we, a lot of what we're doing is constitutional. So it's based on the person's body type and they're really their genetic tendencies, right? So digestion on one side is what Chinese medicine considers deficient and cold. This is kind of like the pale, like, look at me, pale face, kind of thin history of weak digestion, kind of anemic tendency or an anemic look. That's kind of the deficient and cold constitution. So for these people, we're often using herbs like 
ginseng, uh, dried ginger, um, that, that are baiju. Uh, I don't remember the Latin name at this exact moment. Fooling is another one. Poria, that fungus we talked about. Again, licorice, dragansao, honey fried licorice comes up. That other bansha, penelia, and uh, chenpi, tan- aged tangerine peel, that, that's in the bitters category. Um, so that's more on usually the more deficient side. And on top of that, a lot of people are often using guajir cinnamon twig as well, because for a lot of these people, it's, you know, they're often sensitive constitutions, prone to anxiety, prone to sleep problems, prone to restlessness. And guajir cinnamon twig is one of the most effective for calming like palpitations and uh, tachycardia, uh, anxiety, panic attacks, that kind of thing. Very, very effective for that. Uh, so that's more on the cold division side. And digestively, on, on the warmer side, we usually, some of the warmer herbs we use are huangqin, which is scutellaria, and huanglian, which is, man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew the Latin name of huanglian. I'll have to but these herbs are, after. Yeah, these herbs are very, very bitter, very, very bitter, and they're considered very cold. So these are people with more heat in their pathology. So, for example, if you give these herbs to someone with the cold deficient presentation, and they already have loose stools, you're going to give them diarrhea. So there really is a very, very clear kind of uh, indication for where to use these. So I would say in terms of, you know, on the more earth, the middle digestive organs, that's commonly what's showing up. If we moved, so that's, you know, let's just call it digestive yang being weak, digestive function being weak. Um, if it's more the lower part of the body, the lower jaw, lower burner, if we're talking about maybe something related to the kidneys, if the person is maybe more on the dry side, maybe we're using a formula called Shen Shi Wan, kidney chi pill. And that herb has a combination of um, a lot more moisturizing herbs. For example, it has aconite, obviously is the most different, the most distinct kind of herb there that it uses. Um, but also a lot of moisturizing herbs like Dihuang, which is Romania. Um, Shanyao, I think, th- think that's Dioscorea, I think a medicinal yam. Mm-hmm. And... Um, or that might be Shanjuyu. I don't, I don't know which one is, is which at the moment, but those herbs are kind of uh, more moistening. And so we consider when someone is yin deficient, almost like the engine oil is, is weak or the hormones are deficient. We're often using those kind of herbs as well. Um, and then if they're more on the, you know, more on the, the wetter side, people with edema or fluid retention, that kind of thing, again, often using aconite with some of those herbs I mentioned before, uh, the baiju, the fuling, the poria, that mushroom, that's a mild diuretic, ginger, um, mm. that kind of thing. So that's kind of like a way we look at it in terms of yin and yang, where they are on this binary spectrum. Um, so that we can kind of assess what's going to be most effective. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested to see what happens as like herbalism becomes more part of, uh, like reintegrated back into, into medicine. You know, there's a lot of I've even seen a lot of MDs kind of beginning to uh, to view health differently. That's yeah. been a kind of recent revolution in the past couple of decades. Um, I'm interested to see like what the you know what what herbalism can be in the future because the the way, for example, I view herbalism is is just it's just herbalism. There's uh, different like philosophies of diagnosis and their, their whole complete medical systems uh, in and of themselves. And it's important to view them like that because like too much, like trying to like mix them together. Doesn't they're they're They have a lot of fundamental differences, even if they get to the same solution, let's say. Uh, but like the herbs that are used 
are open grounds, right? Because a lot of the herbs used in Chinese medicine are are these native herbs to uh, to to that area, like Tibet, China, et cetera, India. Um, and a lot of the ones in traditional uh, herbalism are ones more Europe, the Americas, et cetera. Uh, and it's like based, those traditions come from those areas and they learn how to use those herbs for those things. Uh, it'd be interesting to see like, uh, reinterpretations of how to like apply like this different system, like how to apply like Chinese med diagnosis to using something like chamomile or something that might not really be used. Uh, because I think they overlap a lot. Um, there are some, there are some books. I remember I was recommending this one to you one time, uh, the energetics of Western herbs. Yeah. Where it, it makes an attempt to, to like, uh, you know, put together, the um like both views like talking about it from a chinese med perspective and talking about it from uh, a traditional med perspective like side by side and i i find like at least for me uh a practicing medicine herbalism that helps a lot because it's easy to kind of see the patterns of uh you know in in chinese medicine it's used for this that and this and then you know in traditional it's used for that the, this and this is what the biochemistry says and it's like it becomes pretty obvious what the herb does. It's almost like you have like different, you have different viewpoints on the same thing, which is an herb having a positive effect on somebody's health. Yeah. I mean, you could apply the same Chinese medicine principles to Western herbs. No problem. I mean, you have to figure out, you have to think how did these ancient people in an era that predated modern chemistry by thousands of years, figure out the functions and Chinese medicine is obvious. I don't think it's, I think a piece is obviously you put the herb in your body and you see what it does and you hopefully don't die. But I think the other piece is it's flavor and nature is how you know the function of an herb according mm -hmm. to Chinese medicine. So the flavor, you know, bitter, sour, sweet, salty, spicy, those will describe physiologically what they're doing to the body to some degree. Um, and Chinese medicine is very clear about what, what those actually do in the body and what organs those affect. So you could just as easily apply that to chamomile or to mint. Um, and then the other one is the nature, which is really the kind of the temperature and so is it more spicy? Is it more cooling? Is it more uh, that kind of, or is it, sorry, is it more warming or more cooling? Where on the spectrum of very hot to very cold is it? And then I think the third thing is really the signature of the herb, which is if the herb has a really almost biomedically defined function throughout history, like if this herb really is a sleep herb, that's kind of a signature function, right? Like we've always used this herb to help sleep. That's what we know it works for. Mm -hmm. So I think you could uncover that and apply it to really anything. You know, mm -hmm. you could definitely apply it to one of the most famous recent Chinese medicine doctors, this guy, Zhang Chun, was alive at the time of the, you know, Western colonization, I think British colonization. And he wrote a whole book on like the flavor of nature of Western pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So he would write of like- Western pharmaceuticals. That's an yeah, interesting like one. Like aspirin, like oh, aspirin and- very interesting. And what so was his What was his name? Uh, Zhang Shichun. Z h a n g x i Shichun. C h u n. Mm -hmm. um, very famous. That's and, interesting. Uh, I like that. I like that viewpoint. It kind of expands out the the flavor correlation. That's a big part in uh, traditional Western herbalism, of course. And uh, a lot of the the research I've looked into from like the biomedical side, it agrees with it because there's some. Have you seen some of uh, the studies that look at how there's uh, like bitter receptors on the tongue and in the gut that like an herb that is actually bitter that you taste has a like physiological effect, like not even talking about like 
pharmacology yet. Have you seen those? Those are really interesting. No, but it makes sense because I mean, even with like we have those bitter herbs, um, Huang Qin, Huang Lian, Scutellaria, and the Huang Lian, uh, they, you know, they have berberine in them. That's why they're so antibacterial. And that's also, you can imagine the effect on the gallbladder as well that they have. So, you know, these are, you know, those herbs are, you pour them into the herb bottle when you're mixing it for a patient and they're bright yellow and they're strong. Oh, and Huang Lian is even orange. It's like a bright orange. Yeah. So berberine. And they're yeah. super, super bitter. That makes sense. There's a lot of similarity between plants. I mean, because they kind of co-evolve and they're using those like compounds in their own, you know, plant bodies for like a purpose. They're not, you know, this whole idea that like every compound in an herb is like a a pesticide is is kind of like ridiculous and and doesn't doesn't really correlate at all with just basic botany, which is not really that well understood. The more one looks into it, the more the more amazing it is. It seems like plants are, have almost the same amount of complexity as like animal life, but just like in a completely different direction. They're like, I mean, they're creating energy from the sun. Like we're still trying to figure out solar panels that like really work efficiently and trees are out there just, just doing it. Like it's their nature to do that, you know? Which is, supposedly trees can even share nutrients between each other. Yeah. Those root networks and mycelial networks. Yeah. The more you look into it, the more you're like, wow, like the plants are not like these uh, stupid inanimate objects that we assume as like, you know, moving life. Maybe plants view humans like that. Maybe. Like, look at these humans moving around so much. They're wasting so much energy. I know. We're just rooted ADD. in here chilling at the beach all day yeah. long. <laughs> hey, that could be what they're really yeah. thinking. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder. Have you heard, um, I was listening to uh, a podcast that was, uh, they were talking about how like current genetic research is uh, getting to a point where there's plans to basically revive like woolly mammoths from like old DNA and things like that. And the reason I uh, bring that up here is I wonder like, you know, prehistoric plants or something like that. Like imagine there's like some insane tree of life that existed and you can like recreate it. That would, that would be a really interesting place to to look into. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, wasn't there someone that was thinking about creating a Jurassic, uh, a prehistoric, I mean, there's a movie called Jurassic Park, right? But there was a, someone who's going to, right? <laughs> yeah, T- TM, I'm about to get. Traditional medicine. Here. Yeah. I live right around the corner from Paramount Pictures. They're about to jump me. Uh, Um, No, there was someone who's going to create a prehistoric park and mammoths being one of them by cloning this ancient DNA. Oh, that sounds fun. I know. Sounds fun. But then you also think about, well, what about like what bacteria or viruses are going to be in those creatures? Yeah. That has been frozen for 20,000 years. Yeah, that's really. Yeah, there's. There's going to be questions about what there's dangers when you, when you, when you reach inside the machinery of life, because not, and I don't, you know, my, my views have changed on that to some degree. Cause in the, maybe like a couple of years ago, I would have said like, it's not worth doing, but now I think more like better be damn careful and like, make sure like you really understand what's going on. Cause genetics is like, it's really complicated. Even even like eye color is related to a bunch of genes. And that's something that's like really simple, but other functions in the body, it's one, you know, 
one gene might be changed, but we don't know the downstream effects. And we don't know how that affects like replication down the cycles and things like that. So we got to be super sure that, you know, those woolly mammoths don't, uh, don't turn out. I don't know. Like you said, spreading some kind of different diseases on the earth, or maybe they're, they'll be like really, maybe woolly mammoths are very intelligent and they'll, they'll break out of the park and then we're going to have a woolly mammoth problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, a lot of unknown. Unlikely, it's, but <laughs> it's like everything. It's like everything. It's yin and yang, right? Every new tech technology solves problems and creates new ones that we can't foresee. Yeah. You yeah. know, whatever it is, whether it's genetic editing or yeah. it's antibiotics or, you know, antibiotics are probably a great one. And it's inevitable too. someone will do it because there is like this positive. Usually the people who are like the innovators and discoverers of these things do it with good intentions. It's right. more of a question of like how it's used later, right? Like even with uh, AI technology, a lot of the people who are, are working on it, they're they're trying to use it for good purposes, right? To make human life easier, to make communication easier, to do something with all this data that we we have and we have no use for. Um, but you know, it's going to be weaponized the second it's there because it's going to be such a powerful weapon. And that's already a lot of research around it from like the military sectors is based on that because. Yeah. You know, if you can, instead of, you know, putting, you know, boots on the ground, as they say in a country, what if you can just shut down the grid and the internet of a country for like a month, like their economy will be devastated. And then you could just march in there. So it, it brings up a lot of questions, obviously with, you know, hydrogen bombs and nuclear weapons and things like that, where they started from this like amazing revelation that you can basically create tons of energy just from some basic atoms and then quickly it became like weaponized. So thankfully, I don't think herbs can become weaponized. I hope not, but genetics think, definitely can. Definitely. I think herbs have always been the OG weapon. Look how many people were poisoned oh, yeah, poisons. arsenic That's or right, yeah. aconite. I mean, wolfsbane was used to kill Romans, used to poison tip their arrows to kill each other and wolves. Yeah. And so, for hunting and for hunting too. Yeah. 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 The dose and makes the poison. Killing your husband too. The dose makes the poison. That's like the original Asclepius traditions. It's really the dose makes the poison. Because mm. what, what's poisonous to an insect is it might uh, trigger, stimulate, like a, the idea is it tr triggers a counter response in the body. And that counter response can actually be healing because our counter responses like a fever are have therapeutic purposes. Yeah. So if someone's like chronically sick, use an herb that like initiates a fever, although that doesn't seem like that would be a good thing from a more integrative uh, point of view, that could actually lead to resolution. Although it'll make them feel worse in the beginning. That's for sure. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a popular approach these days anymore right. for, for good reason. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for being on the Herbal Hour podcast again. Always a pleasure. Yeah. To talk to yeah. Thanks Dr. for having uh, me. Dr. Alex Hine, where can people uh, find your, your work? I'd say the best way is um, you could probably just type in Dr. Alex Hine on YouTube if you want to look at videos in Chinese medicine. That's a big repository. We're always putting out a couple more every week. Uh, and then that would probably be the easiest way. Yeah, if you're interested in Chinese medicine specifically and herbs, uh, that's the best way to follow up for sure. Sounds good. Thank you, sir, Alex. Uh, hope you have a beautiful day. Yeah, thanks for having me.